Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. If you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital, or in a command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to l3harris.com. This begins part two of Cynthia McCoy's episode. Part one, we were focusing more on the economics of disaster. Part two, we're going to be focusing a lot more on that hazard mitigation piece. So make sure you checked out part one so you understand the conversation that's happening here. A lot of really good information. Let's start part two right now. Okay, so you just talked about so many different good areas within the recovery process, right? Of like what needs to happen there, um, all, all the things that can that can impact from a social economic level to uh, just like displacement and the disruptions there, and that's like such a really good call out for us. And now we're, we've been talking about the socioeconomic. Let's talk about kind of like more of the the economics of disaster. I mean, it's, it, recovery is just so mind boggling. You mentioned. 35 billion just in Harris County alone from Hurricane Harvey. And we often talk about that physical impact, like the number of homes or, you know, uh, number of people displaced, but we rarely even break down what those numbers mean. And so for us, uh, what are some of the most ex uh, expensive aspects of recovery that we don't really get to talk about very much or, or the surprises that come up in a community? So first, let's talk about the cost of disasters in general. Natural disasters are being recorded more frequently than ever before. Uh, according to The Economist, since 1970, the number of disasters worldwide has more than quadrupled to around 400 events a year. Uh, the top 10 disasters since the year 2000 include uh, number 10, the Christchurch earthquake in 2011. That was a 6.3 magnitude earthquake. Um, at $25.5 billion. In the middle of that list, this is just the top 10, is uh, Hurricane Maria that was, was coming on just as you and I were working in Austin, uh, $90 billion in damages. And then the number one most expensive earthquake on record was the 2011 uh, earthquake in Japan and tsunami uh, with losses estimating somewhere between 200 and $305 billion. Uh, according to researchers, climate change is linked to an increase in the frequency of disasters that I was just talking about, as well as the intensity of natural disasters, which really is leading to the necessity for planning, for evaluating the risk of these disasters. Three years after Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico is still recovering. The impact of New Orleans, or excuse me, the impact on New Orleans from Hurricane Katrina uh, that happened 15 years ago, it still can be seen in the city. 
So with larger, more dramatic events becoming more costly, it's so important for both planners and emergency managers to be planning for the future costs. A lot of the financial impacts, in my opinion, come after the disaster uh, in indirect economic impacts. This is the loss of jobs and household income if a major employer is impacted by a disaster. Uh, There's also the long-term damage to transit infrastructure and utilities, which can then make it impossible for small businesses to recover. Then you have the loss of renters and, as a result, rental income, and then reduced property values. All of this impacts local tax revenue. So for the impacted communities, some are never able to financially recover. And this is why mitigation is so important so that they never have to deal with those financial ramifications. In a report that was released in 2018 by the National Institute of Building Sciences, they found that for every $1 that federal government spends on uh, pre-disaster mitigation projects, such as elevating a home in a high-risk flooding area, or improving stormwater management systems, or strengthening uh, buildings against an earthquake, it reduces future costs, uh, or rather losses from a disaster, by an average of These are losses that are avoided from a future disaster event. Um, Cynthia is wearing one of my favorite shirts of all time. Yep. The Hurricane Harvey shirt. Look at that. Uh, The Hurricane, you'll you'll probably see this on our YouTube video when, when we upload these videos. But what we would do when we go out to disaster is um, we would try to find uh, a local business that was impacted. And every disaster I went to, local business that was impacted and try to help them in some way. Sometimes it was a restaurant and sometimes it was like a, I, I got a shirt from a t-shirt shop one time. Um, this one we made shirts. And uh, in Hurricane Harvey, we made our first round, I think we made 300 shirts. And then after I left, like hundreds more of shirts were made because all the responders were trying to get them. And um, I like I just like that you're wearing that shirt because that's like, again, that call out that, you know, there's so much um, impact on the economy. Businesses are impacted so much. What is it? Like 40% of small businesses after disaster don't open their doors again. And those that do open their doors, uh, 25% of them fail within a year. That is why we have coop plans. That is why we have hazard mitigation plans. And um, that's why we put in these MOUs with competitors that, we want our industry to survive during a disaster and yeah, 10, 15 years for recovery. When the media leaves, the recovery still happening. Um, you know, paradise just up the road from us. Um, they're still in the recovery and they're going to be in recovery for a long time. And they have to think about all those impacts and yet like so many good call outs there. Um, so like that's, that's just like a, a really good point that you make. Um, you also talked about, a 2011 tsunami in Japan and um, how expensive that was. I still remember trying to get out there to wanting, wanting to help. Um, I didn't know too much about response at that point, but I, I wanted to get out there and help and uh, got all these volunteers, got a bunch of money. We got all of our supplies. We got everything we needed. And Japan said, no, we just wanted money. And at the time I was like, Oh, I'm so angry. Uh, you know, I didn't get it. Because I thought with my no experience that I could go pull people out of the mud. Um, and really what it comes down to is like that, that economic impact can crumble an economy. And yet Japan has the best building codes in the world by far. I mean, they, they do. And if they had the same building codes as, let's say, Haiti, 
like that number would have been exponential to to what it was already. And so it shows that regulation matters. It shows that building codes matter. And it's still, you know, astronomical in numbers um, that we have to deal with. So really good call outs there. And uh, we've been talking about, uh, you know, the economic impacts, the socioeconomic impacts of disasters a lot. So um, we have a ton of local emergency managers on here. And those are local emergency managers obviously have to deal with hazard mitigation plans a lot. And so I just want to kind of walk through that. Um, when when you're dealing with uh, a hazard mitigation plan, you've worked with that as a federal level. You've worked to, to help communities out with their hazmat plans. What would be some of your advice, especially uh, as they're going through and they're trying to tackle the planning for the first time? Like you just got the job and now you're told, hey, do a hazmat plan. What would be your, your advice to help them out? You like this. It's uh, advice as it relates to geospatial analysis, which I think is a it's a huge hurdle. It's I believe emergency managers wear a number of hats, and it doesn't always mean that they're a GIS expert. So my advice to an emergency manager who's responsible for writing or organizing the development of a hazard mitigation plan, which is a huge undertaking, would be strategic in their development of their risk assessment. I always like to say that the risk assessment is crucial as it's going to inform your mitigation strategies, it's going to inform how funding is prioritized for mitigation of homes or important infrastructure and utilities. So I like to tell emergency managers that they need to do an assessment before they do the assessment. Mm, And by that, I mean, start by identifying which questions you want to answer. You're not going to be able to analyze every hazard and every scenario, and you shouldn't. What are the questions you want to answer? For example, which structures are at greatest risk to an earthquake? Which roads will be impassable during a flooding event? After you've identified all of the questions that you want to answer, then go back and identify what type of data or software is needed to answer those questions. And then in most situations, the community is not going to be able to analyze the impacts of every natural hazard. So then identify the gaps and resources that you have currently that might be staff, training, data, funding, and then focus on focus your efforts on um, how you can lead to useful results to inform data-driven mitigation uh, strategies. Now, that might mean that you do all of your analysis and help. You have the capability through this capability assessment that I'm recommending. It might mean that that informs your Um, your scope of work for a contractor who knows how to do risk assessments, but at least you are are targeting what you're looking for, either internally or externally, whoever's developing it, rather than saying, I simply need a risk assessment and I don't know where to get started. If you take that approach where you say, I don't know what I need, you're going to get information back that you don't know how to use. So that's why my recommendation is you start with, what are we trying to figure out what data is currently available or what data might need to be developed before we develop the risk assessment? And then how do we leverage that information in order to develop strategies? Be strategic. Be strategic. Uh, I really like the phrase, sometimes it's not about trying to find the right answer, but it's trying to find the right question. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're talking about. Um, You talk about uh, bringing additional resources Duh, I had to call out Doberman Emergency Management because we do that 
Um, and our big pitch, and it's kind of what you're talking about a little bit here, is um, by having the right questions, you're getting away from that cookie cutter mindset of just fill out the template and you know you you check the box now it's a brick on the wall. Um, I talked about this last week with um, the director of Georgetown's emergency management uh, director director of a uh, emergency and disaster management program, and it's just like the, the the major problem is these companies will go in there not ask the right questions, and you'll get like this brick of just useless information. And we'll go in there and um, as emergency managers in the event, and we're like, okay, I don't need. 500 pages of a definition of a volcano we're in a flood so like that's that's a huge call out and um, that's kind of the reason why um, we we want to focus on GIS in that component because it proves this is what's actually happening in your event in your um, in your scope of interest so good call out for GIS as well um, and unfortunately risk assessment can be extremely expensive. Uh, depending upon the level of assessment you're looking for. So by further identifying what you're looking for, you're honing in how your funding is going to be used. And for most communities, they don't have never-ending pockets. So it's really prioritizing how those funds are used. Yeah, especially on mitigation. Mitigation projects become astronomical. Um, Sacramento County, again, going to back to Sacramento County, um, or region rather, it is noted that we had the worst levy systems in the United States. Um, and... Yeah, that's it, it concerns me, um, <laughs> right? But at the same time, like, okay, you have to prioritize. You you don't have endless funds. You can't fix every levy in in the county at the same time. What are you going to do, and how are you going to prioritize that? So, a really really good call outs, asking the right questions. Um, the last thing I want to call out on that one before I forget, because again, like we like to give good advice. Uh, maybe I can share it online or something, but. Um, cause I'm again, all about free, free stuff, but the, what we look at and what I did, um, when I was in DC, especially is I broke down hazard vulnerability assessments and hazard mitigation plans to basically 36 major disasters, whether it's man-made or natural that could impact, uh, whether a local community or larger. And then within that construct, start to pull in that geospatial information and try to get that both that strategic level and trying to figure out how much risk you really have because you don't want to be 100% safe on everything. That means everyone's going to be living in a box. So we don't want that. But um, speaking of hazard mitigation plans, from a county to federal perspective, that, that relationship, what are some things in a hazard mitigation plan that you're like, oh, I'm so glad that they included this? Well, to me, I, I'm a little less interested uh, in what a plan looks like uh, because I think that I don't know that there is a perfect plan. Uh, what I'm more interested in that it's getting used. I think the worst thing that a community can do is have a plan developed, whether it's internally or developed by a consultant, and let it sit on the shelf and acquire dust. And the... Um, the mitigation strategies that are developed through the hazard mitigation planning process need to be integrated into a city's long-term development uh, and their planning process, their land use planning. We talked about earlier, that's where mitigation or rather emergency managers in the mitigation part of the emergency management cycle and urban planners have an opportunity to collaborate. So once an emergency management 
plan uh, or a natural hazard mitigation plan is developed, I think now it needs to be used. Uh, Tatter the pages a little bit, get some coffee stains on it, knowing that people are actually leveraging these plans, uh, as well as uh, informing other plans like comprehensive planning, again, the long-term growth of a community 25, 50 years in the future. It should also inform inform climate adaptation planning, uh, building codes, land use codes, and floodplain ordinances. They need to inform one another so that you don't have one department uh, planning in one direction and another department not realizing that there's an overlap. So uh, Again, my recommendation is less about what should be inside it and more that it, it's being used and informing other planning processes and policies. I would argue that there is a perfect emergency management plan out there. And I, I want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's being used. Yeah, again, a reoccurring theme the last couple of weeks is like, don't make sure, make sure it's not a brick. Make sure it's not a brick. Um, and that is a, that is a, concern I have with specifically hazard mitigation plans. You look at almost every other plan, emergency operations plan, occupant emergency plan, a coop, um, all these other things, they have to be updated for fairly frequently and they get used. As a hazard mitigation plan, I, I, have a, I have an issue with because I go, I've gone into so many communities in a response and it's just a brick. Like, yeah, we did it to be able to get FEMA grants, but you didn't get actually any FEMA grants. You know, and you and you weren't working with it, and um, yeah, just for all those local emergency managers out there, don't do it because of potential grant that you don't know about in the future. Do it to be able to use it, and um, man, I, I cannot uh, stress that enough. So, the biggest carrot for an emergency management plan or a hazard mitigation plan is that they can get access to funding after they have a, a presidentially declared disaster. So they're checking a box, and unfortunately, I find that if communities are not involved in the planning process, even if it's being developed by a consultant, that's fine. But if they're not deeply involved in the process and have the investment, then that's why it usually ends up sitting on a shelf and growing dust is that they don't know what's in it, and they weren't involved in the, the policies and the strategies that, were, that are identified in that plan. And that's why it's important that they're involved in the process. And once it's completed, that it continues to be leveraged. It's a living document. When uh, those the decision makers go in there and they look at their budget and an emergency manager goes in there and says, I want to fix all the le- levies. It's going to cost this amount of dollars and it, you get blank stares. But if you go in there again with that like geospatial analysis and say, this is our community. This is what what's happened. I can through, prove through data. You get a lot more people paying attention. One, they like something pretty, and so you see something, you see a map, and you're like, ooh, you know. But you know, a- adding that data piece validates emergency managers so much more. And so when they're working with, um, you know, local officials who decide their budget, you know, those those uh, pieces really help out as well. So if you're looking to get things done and you're getting stonewalled, you know, for all these listeners out here, you know, add that GIS piece in there. Add, you know, we've talked about calling it insurance, right? You can pay a little bit now or you can pay a lot in the future. What do you want to deal with? Um, and, and again, going back to messaging, you talked about messaging. Um, yeah, man, I, man, I really want to talk to you more about this, but I think uh, in terms of time, um, we got to get you come back on here sometime because you've had so many good points 
that I'm like, man, this is excellent. This is exactly how I feel on the matter. And, um, man, we're talking about so many good things. Um, so I think you kind of hit on this already. Um, but we talked about really good things in the plan about using the plan and that's most important. And I, I'm going to guess here and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Would you say that the biggest mistake of a hazard mitigation plan is not using it? If using is the, the biggest thing or what are, what is something that people should, so, should avoid besides not using it? I think the biggest mistake they can make is not involving local subject matter experts in the hazard mitigation planning process in the attempt to simply check a box and get a document developed because because the the box that they're checking is a requirement to obtain disaster funding. But when you involve the, the local engineer, the local planner, architect, public works representative, whoever you have locally, they not only have uh, the local expertise uh, and institutional knowledge, but they can help to inform your mitigation strategies. They'll also help you, in my point earlier, about integrating the strategies that are developed in the plan into other codes, ordinances, and planning processes because they will have had that investment. And uh, as you mentioned, it's my understanding that, that Doberman has a lot of uh, experience and staff expertise to develop natural hazard mitigation plans. We do, and I thank you for that. I, I love doing this because I brought in Rodney Melsick and I brought in the, these other experienced emergency managers who actually care about communities, who want to see things change there. And um, I, I've been saying this for a while, outside of Doberman, just in our, in our field in general, emergency manager sometimes is a misnomer. Um, emergency coordinator is much more accurate in my mind because you're bringing the urban planners, you're bringing, uh, you know, uh, u- utilities, you're bringing in housing development, uh, you're, you're bringing in uh, major companies, sometimes engineers, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, you know, emergency manager is really that should be that focal of that leader. And so as Cynthia was talking, and she said, hey, you should bring in all these people, or as I'm saying that right now, and you're thinking, oh, I don't want to work with them, you need to do some serious gut check, because an emergency manager that's what you're supposed to do. If you come up with a plan by yourself, then it's going to it's gonna be worthless. When you present that to a community or when you want to enact that plan, everyone's going to be like, I didn't sign off on this. I think even Patrick McGinn brought that up. He talked about the best plans he's seen is when, it, when the entire community is involved. And like that's a really big thing we stress. So um, we were talking about dams um, for our company. Our company was working on dams a while ago, and we brought in everybody we could possibly imagine to to be included in that planning piece before we we even gave up our final draft because we wanted to make sure that everybody's involved so yeah thank you for for calling us out um we think we make pretty good plans obviously confirmation bias but um yeah so that brings us to our last section oh i tried this out last week hold on this is gonna be fun ready for it wait for it ready for this do you want to? Do you want Do you want music? Do you want applause? Do you want? Let's do. I've never had applause. <gasps> well, yeah. I'll applause for you, but we'll we'll applause in general. Ready for this? Wait for it. All right, here we go. Rapid fire. Oh my gosh! Yay! Here we go. Cynthia McCoy, expert urban planner and emergency manager. Let's talk about rapid fire for a second. Okay, 
Out of all the disasters you've been out to, which disaster has been most impactful to you? I definitely think it was supporting Hurricane Harvey. It was a humbling experience to support both the state and the councils of government to develop those long-term community recovery strategies and what their rebuilding would look like with the National Disaster Recovery Framework. I'm so glad you gave that answer because most people, when they say Harvey, they say, I had to work with John Scartina. <laughs> most impactful. I had to work with John Scartina. No, uh, good call out. And uh, man, Harvey, I could, uh, every, almost every episode, Harvey gets brought up somehow because, I mean, it just shows that um, huge disaster. I'm sure the pandemic will be brought up a lot in the following years. Okay. Um, if you're going to give, a future emergency manager, some advice, what would that be? If you're going to change one thing for the future, yeah. Okay. If I were to change one thing for the future, again, I'll go back to uh, our analytical skill that we share in common. I, I would say it's reducing the cost of entry to analyzing a community's natural hazard risk. And I don't necessarily mean the cost, the financial cost, but in order to have local expertise in GIS or whatever tool they decide, it, it does require a lot of time and energy into learning how to use those tools and creating that data. So I see it as a cost of entry. Small communities may not have a GIS analyst or the software, the high quality data, and this creates inequity. So it would be creating more resources for communities that don't yet have the, the ability or the access to GIS analysis. Can I ask you a random question? Because we're both GISers. Yeah. Uh, yes. Is there a, a tool that you just hate to use in GIS? In GIS specifically. Like Arc Desktop or Pro? Ah. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of random, right? <laughs> uh, well, it, I wouldn't say I hate to use it, but I'm, I'm still getting more familiar with the modeling aspect. And by modeling, I mean the programming aspect. So I started using ArcGIS when I was like 3.2. I think I'm showing my age now, where a lot of it wasn't systematic processing. You did have to do a little bit of programming. But now if you want to use some of the tools in ArcGIS and you want to make them more unique for your, your needs, you need to know a little bit about either modeling or Python. And... Uh, you, you can definitely call some of my FEMA Region 10 colleagues who supported me during Harvey. God bless them. They uh, they did some of the, the Python programming for me for a couple of resources because it's not my strong suit. So my dislike of it is needing more training. <laughs> uh, GIS always requires more training. Oh, my gosh. Like, every time I felt like I was like, all right, I got this. I got this figured out. Like, new version. Like, when Pro came out, I remember, like, what? Pro? Like, I like my desktop version then I'll start going to pro in the cloud. So, yeah, kind of funny. Um, okay. So we talked about all these different things this episode. Uh, I'll ask my last question in a second. But I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on here. You, Yeah, you clearly know your stuff. I mean, we talked about socioeconomic impacts. We talked about the historical versus the future, the future look in but between emergency management and uh, urban plan. We talked about... Uh, populations and looking at those populations from the, both the humanistic side and from a data side. And it shows that data informed decisions, including the, the, the thinking about the, the, how in people are impacted. I mean, you hit on so many different areas and it shows through your wealth of experience in both the Peace Corps internationally and through working through several groups here in the United States. 
I'm so glad that we worked together in Hurricane Harvey, and I'm so glad that she came on the show. Well, thank you for having me. All right, last question. We're going to do this one more time. Oh, my gosh, yes. What is the best podcast for emergency management? John, that's easy. The Disaster Talk podcast. Hey! I love, I love these. I love these buttons. Cynthia, again, thank you so much. Everybody, if you want to uh, comment on Cynthia's episode and you want uh, you want us to ask more questions for the, for her in the future, you want to get her to back, come back on, do a couple things for us. Give us a five-star rating and subscribe, of course. You can also send us an, inf- uh, uh, an email at info at DobermanEMG.com. But we'll also be posting Cynthia's bio up on our social media channels, so the Disaster Tough podcast on Instagram or Doberman EMG on Twitter. So make sure you check both of those things out. Again, Disaster Tough podcast on Instagram and DobermanEMG.com on Twitter.